that today there are threats to security of a new and unprecedented kind. These threats do not divide us. They are threats which should unite us, no matter from which part of the world we come, for they face us all. They are rising global temperatures, the despoiling of the ocean, that vast universal larder on which people everywhere depend for their food. Changes in the pattern of weather worldwide that pay no regard to national boundaries, but that can turn forests into deserts, drown great cities, and lead to the extermination of huge numbers of the other creatures with which we share this planet. No matter what we do now, some of these threats will assuredly become reality within a few short years. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. That was Sir David Attenborough speaking to the UN Security Council this week. The broadcaster and conservationist told the UN Security Conference regarding the impact of climate change that the world must unite against environmental threats. Sir David Attenborough notes consequences of climate change do not respect national boundaries, but instead will cause havoc worldwide. And it's happening in California forest fires, in Texas winter storms. This year alone has seen a series of devastating climate disasters in various parts of the world. Heat waves in India, Pakistan and Europe, flooding in Southeast Asia. From Mozambique to Bangladesh, millions of people have already lost their homes, livelihoods, and loved ones as a result of more dangerous and more frequent extreme weather events. Increases of air and water temperatures lead to rising sea levels, supercharged storms, and higher wind speeds, more intense and prolonged droughts and wildfire seasons, heavier precipitation, and flooding. The evidence is overwhelming and results are devastating. Global warming is not a debate, it's science. And if you're still wondering if it's occurring, then you're vastly uninformed and misled by fringe political leaders who place profit over environmental concerns. The number of climate-related disasters has tripled in the last 30 years. Get this, between 2006 and 2016, the rate of global sea level rise was two and a half times faster than it was for almost all of the 20th century. More than 20 million people are forced from their homes by climate change. The United Nations Environment Program estimates that adapting to climate change and coping with damages will cost developing countries $140 to $300 billion per year by 2030. On this backstory, we talk to an expert on national security and the environment and the World Wildlife Fund on how freshwater fish are now going extinct by the dozens. All right, Jeff Opperman is the World Wildlife Federation's uh, freshwater lead scientist. And Jeff, you're based in Ohio. Yes, that's correct. Thanks for doing this. I am shocked by the numbers. I mean, your 
the WWF and 16 conservation groups came out with this report and they're saying uh, that a third, a third of freshwater fish species are threatened by extinction. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty grim statistic. And it really, there's been uh, you know, a raft of studies that have shown that uh, freshwater ecosystems and freshwater species are more imperiled than their counterparts uh, on land or in oceans. And it really is something that most people are not aware of, um, in part because freshwater species and the ecosystems are literally literally hidden beneath the surface, so to speak. Um, but whenever scientists look into these kinds of patterns, uh, the, the greatest threats, the greatest risk of extinction, the greatest declines, all are happening in freshwater ecosystems like lakes and rivers. How do we get to this idea of saying that they are threatened by extinction? Is there any kind of overstate in there, or do you believe that these are kind of, these are genuine, accurate numbers? Well, scientists do, do have uh, thresholds of population sizes that are, um, uh, that, that they use to to use you know to back up expressions like threatened with extinction. And so, for example, IUCN has um, what they call the red list, and they have classifications of of species. Um, and I'm forgetting the specific classifications, but essentially things like threatened at risk of extinction. Um, you know, different gradations, different levels, yeah, and those I mean, are they're not they're they're not endangered. They're saying threatened by extinction. I mean, right. So that's that's, that's the classification as severe yeah. as it gets. Right. I mean, that's based on um, uh, trajectories. It's based on total population sizes. To, to be classified in that category is is meaning you have moved beyond uh, endangered. You you know, moving into something where you you're truly at risk of extinction. And as we say, this is just not uh, one conservation group. This is sixteen of very reputable conservation groups around the world talking about this. Why is it happening? Let's talk about it. So there's a, there's a pretty diverse range of, of drivers and threats to freshwater ecosystems. Um, so most people instinctively think about water pollution. You know, they think that, well, if, if freshwater ecosystems are declining, it's because of, of dirty water. And certainly water pollution is a major factor um, in, in some parts of the world more than others. But even in places that have really cleaned up their waters, you're still seeing uh ecosystems that aren't really recovering or, 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 you know, species that are threatened because there are so many other threats, including the infrastructure that we use to manage our rivers. So that's dams and levees. And we use this infrastructure generally to control where water goes. We, you know, we like to uh, put water in certain places and keep water from going to other places, but ecosystems have always thrived on connectivity. Uh, of water being able to, uh, you know, move to, to connect from rivers to wetlands or for fish to be able to swim up long distances on rivers. And our infrastructure, our dams and our levees, our flood walls, all of those are intended to fragment. Um, and so while ecosystems thrive on connectivity, our infrastructure is intended to, to separate and fragment. And that, that is, has, has major uh, disruptions for how freshwater ecosystems function. So there's something you could have very clean water, but if you have a fragmented system, uh, species like fish are going to uh, have a lot of problems. I live on a farm north of Toronto. Uh, when I'm not in London, that's where I grew up. And we have this beautiful river that runs through there. And it's it runs for miles. It's north of Toronto and Ontario. And, um, you know, when I took my kids there, they were like, let's dam this, you know, and make a pond. <laughs> 
right? And then um, put fish in it. And then the conservation people, I mean, they're really great, I think, in Canada generally. They came through and they walked those farms and they came through and said, can we walk across the farm? And we started talking about the river with my kids, which is a great education. And they were saying, don't damn it. Don't clear the grass away from it. Um, and then they started showing us all the species of little fish in there that we didn't even realize were, were there. And they're traveling, you know, dozens and dozens of miles. The best thing you can do with a river is let it run. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, little kids have that instinct. Um, I think you, you see it anywhere. Uh, small streams. If you're in a park, you'll see you often see remnants of where somebody uh, piled up the stones. And so, yeah, sure, there is this instinct. It's kind of like, you know, beavers have the same instinct. They see running water. They they want to dam it up. Um, but exactly. I mean, let the when rivers flow and when they can connect different parts of the landscape, that's when ecosystems are at their most productive and diverse. Populations of large species weighing more than 60 pounds have fallen more than a catastrophic 94%. And then they talked about 80 freshwater uh, species under pressure with 16 already disappearing in 2020. Yeah, so, I mean, what are we doing? So the first, the first stat you cited was about, you know, what are called megafauna. So literally just big animals um, and, 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 fr and freshwater fish megafauna are, have been particularly hit hard, the 94% decline since 1970, you cited. Uh, a lot of that has to do with what I was just talking about, um, the fragmentation. So big animals in particular need room to roam, right? I mean, we think about uh, the, the big carnivores, um, you know, you still have them well north of Ontario, you still have wolves and such, uh, but in most of the United States, the landscape is fragmented. And so we, we can't support wolves. Um, you know, tigers are being hemmed in the landscape. You know, tigers need vast space. Well, freshwater fish megafauna are the same thing. They need large areas and they need them to be connected. They need to move from one to the other, like the Mekong giant catfish. But they're There's obviously the not, they're obviously not going to be in rivers, most of them, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about something... That big, you're probably talking about the Great Lakes in Canada, for instance. No, we we are talking about the U.S. border too. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, we are talking rivers about the, some of this megafauna. I mean, the um, the the Mekong giant catfish. It's a, it's an herbivore. It eats plants and algae in rivers, but it weighs as much as a grizzly bear. Uh, the Mekong freshwater stingray uh, is this massive flat, you know, stingray shape that it, it could drape over a king-size bed and be, you know, touching the floor. That's how massive they are. Um, the, the beluga sturgeon, um, it, it's mostly in the ocean, but it's anadromous, so it swims up rivers uh, to spawn. Um, and this this was the size of a great white shark. So, so rivers, big rivers, are capable of supporting uh, huge, huge animals. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh... I mean, there's so much going on and even big bodies of water, too. I mean, as the rivers flow into the Great Lakes that, you know, they've been they, the, the water levels have been have been falling. Um, there's a lot of fish farming going on, which adds to huge pollution inside the Great Lakes as well. Um, and, and overfishing, although, you know, so, some people saying in the pandemic, there's actually been some positive things. And that is there's been less tourism and less people putting pressure on the ecosystem. Well, there, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories that come out about how our presence um, affects animals and their behavior. And this was, I think, one of it is one of the interesting insights. Um, uh, just, you know, just our presence, just the sounds that we make, uh, the boat noises, the the movements, uh, species 
adjust their behavior to avoid those things, realizing that you know our presence uh, does influence. And hopefully, there's ways that we pick up important insights from that. Um, and you know, it's important that we're also people are out enjoying lakes and rivers and, and fishing and, and taking advantage of all that because we need people to to really be connected another form of connectivity. We need people connected to their lakes and rivers. Uh, but if we have insights about how, you know, movements or, or people's behavior can be adjusted to, to make it better for, uh, for uh, animals, that would be great. Is there a way to just not talk about this, but if you were to press the button and give me your headline solution, um, the, probably on the top of your list, what we need to do right now, like yesterday, to save these species, what is it? Um, let's see, we could have a, um, a headline that says, um, solar panels save migratory fish. And you know that might be a bit of an unexpected headline, but what I'm talking about here is, is and I keep talking about, is this idea of, of migratory fish and large fish they need room to roam. They need connectivity. They need to be able to swim up rivers. Um, and the the biggest source of fragmentation of, of big rivers has been hydropower dams. Um, and there are still thousands of hydropower dams planned uh, in rivers around the world. So only about a third of long rivers are still considered free-flowing, meaning they're not fragmented by dams. And many of is those that, Is that are, like over the last 100 years or so, or that we've lost um, two-thirds? Yeah. Yes, I would say because um, the, a dam capable of fragmenting a big river has only been possible uh, since the early 1900s. If we start thinking about, you know, Hoover Dam at its time was the this incredible engineering uh, accomplishment for because it was a big dam on a big river. And so since then, the 1920s, 1930s, um, there have been dams. We've dammed most of our major rivers, most of you know Danube, Rhine, most of Europe's major rivers. And so if you look at a map of the long free-flowing rivers, those that remain are in the Amazon basin, they're in the Congo basin, there's a few in, in Asia, and then in the far north in Siberia and flowing towards the you know Arctic Ocean where there really aren't people. But the, where there are people, uh, it's really in the tropics that we have these long free-flowing rivers. That's exactly where the proposals for future hydropower dams the tributaries of the Amazon, the Mekong River, the Irrawaddy River. These are also the rivers that still support huge migratory runs of fish uh, and, and, and the big freshwater megafauna, the giant catfish. Um, and hydropower is increasingly um, less competitive as a source of energy compared to wind and solar because their prices, their cost has been dropping so precipitously. And there's been a range of you know battery storage and other storage options and grid management. It's called the renewable revolution. And this renewable revolution is making it so that countries don't have to make this really tough decision. Do we dam this river to get a lot of electricity, but we lose all the, so many of the values of this river, often displacing, you know, big, lots of communities and farmland, but fragmenting the river and losing the fisheries. Countries don't have to make that trade-off anymore because we have a lot more we have a lot more diverse sources of low carbon energy now. So that would be my headline. You know, solar panel saves the catfish or something like that. Yeah. I, I was just talking to a security expert this week um, on the converging risks of of, uh, of ecological disruption, and th that's with the Council of Strategic Risks in the in the United States. I'm going to run that interview together with yours, but it's interesting that they're saying. 
you know, it shouldn't be a conservation conversation that takes place outside of all the other critical uh, organizations of government now, because these big con conversations about conservation, because they're not being had in the right places, what you're seeing is threats to national security of all sorts of countries, because it goes beyond just what species you want to protect, but the displacement of people, the lack of water, um, it, I mean, it's, it's threatening the planet, right? Well, this, this report, the Forgotten Fishes report, does a really good job of, of highlighting the nutritional value, the food security value of rivers. And, you know, dams often are built in one country and then affect the food security value of a downstream country. Um, and, and all of that is directly related to stability, security. So, yeah, it's, it's exactly. I think we need to not just be trying to get the Ministry of Environment to be talking about these issues or making decisions. Uh, we need to be talking to the, you know, the ministries of uh, of finance and and planning and energy um, and, and you know agriculture, the people that oversee food security, because the rivers and things like fisheries are fully integrated into the economies and security and stability of countries. So yeah, we need to we need to not just think that this is about protecting species, which is important. It's it's central to the. Uh, you know, functioning and stability of many countries. And we need to support conservation groups and organizations like the World Wildlife Federation and uh, and and uh, Jeff Offerman for his, his work in there. But you know, one thing a lot of people don't know about Jeff, which I have now learned about because of the, the person from the WWF, told me that you have put together a history of beer through beer labels. <laughs> And I actually, because I had a few minutes before, <laughs> before the interview, took a look at it and... Uh, your research is obviously flawed because I did not see any Canadian beer in there. I have, so I, right above me here, I have my collection of, uh, of river and fish themed beer bottles. I do have a Canadian one. Um, I think it, it was a little complicated because it, 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 it had a hydropower dam on the label. So it's a river themed, um, but uh, yeah, I wasn't sure if I could work that in. Counterintuitive to conservation. <laughs> what was, uh, you don't remember the name of the beer, do you? It's, uh, it would take me a second to find it. Don't no. worry, don't worry. I know it's a long yeah. list. And then you have also on YouTube put together a list of river songs. Well, I think that both the beer labels and the river songs, what they speak to is this incredible intertwining of culture and rivers from time immemorial. Uh, we are river species. We are river valley species. That is where uh, the first settlements occurred. That is, I mean, they've always been the areas of incredible productivity, whether it's fishing or, or waterfowl or, or you know, in the dry season and transportation, right? And, and so, really, we as civilization grew up around rivers. And so, like, you know, it's sort of reflected uh, we, we paint our, orange, our origins. And so, that's why we put it on our beer, our beer labels. It's, it's reminding us of where we come from. We come from, you know, a people who settled along rivers to brew beer. And we wrote songs about it. Yeah. So there's the, the, the number of songs about rivers is really quite amazing. Go sit on the riverbank and have a beer and sing a song and don't build a bloody dam there. <laughs> right. Yeah. A lot of ways to connect to your river. And, uh, and if we can avoid disconnecting our rivers, that's, that's a bonus. Jeff Opperman from the World Wildlife Federation. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Great to talk with you. All right, joining me now is Rod Schoonover, the author of the report, The Security Risk 
that binds us. Hi, Rod. You're in Washington. I'm in Washington. Happy to be with you. You were also the former director of environment and natural resources at the National Intelligence Council. Right. And it really interests me that we now begin to look at ecological uh, disruption uh, and networks that, that you talk about, fraying eco ecological networks uh, mm -hmm. as security risks, nation security risks. Right. Why is that? Well, I mean, it has to do with uh, humans' relationship with, uh, with, the, with the planet that's changing under our feet. And so basically, uh, you know, the, the overarching concept is that humans, human activities are producing new and, and rapid and, and foundational changes across multiple Earth systems in the atmosphere, water, the ocean, and in our biological systems as well. You wrote and that these, the U.S. And, and international security communities need to treat ecological disruption and climate change as conduits of sec national security threats rather than mere environmental concerns. Correct. I mean, haven't we always looked at these as some kind of security threats in the sense that, you know, there have been tensions over water and, and, mm -hmm. and borders between states and... Uh, sure. And migration, people displaced sure. you know, because of environmental issues. Sure. So, I mean, certainly some parts of that, like water uh, and, you know, some elements of, of climate change easily enter into the, the typical security doctrine, right? Like uh, people can think about water security issues because they understand that people uh, and nations have tensions over uh, over water shortages or water stress. Um, so yeah, certainly water, uh, the water story is not new, but I think a lot of people don't look at um, deforestation or fisheries declines or, you know, extinction rates of organisms uh, as being anything more than an unfortunate uh, phenomenon happening that may or may not have an effect to people uh, in this country and others. And you're telling them, and you're telling governments, if you're not an environmental leaning government, uh, you, you better wake up anyway, because this can right. affect the security of, of your nation. Right. And I, just, be, just to be clear, I mean, although it is easily discussed in, a, in an environmental framework, I don't really see it that way. I see it as a, uh, a set of issues, a set of stresses that are affecting people, societies, and the systems that they're dependent on. And so, um, you know, in terms of economics and labor and, and food security, uh, these are all issues that um, countries, national leaders, not only should care about, uh, they do care about it. But they often don't tie these things together. And so, you know, you very, you know, if you're, if you read news stories, um, you know, you can, you can see, you know, every couple of weeks, a story about some bad ecological thing happening. You see some report about just this morning about uh, something like a third of freshwater fisheries are uh, in jeopardy of extinction. Uh, the consequences to people are enormous. And so 
you know, it's just about, uh, you know, helping security uh, officials and, and policymakers and the general public make those connections. Uh, these are not uh, just the purview of the, you know, um, headlines in National Geographic or some other environmental press. These are things that will affect people. When you look at things like snowstorms in Texas or, you know, forest <laughs> fires in California, um, you know, you guys can't even agree on that in the United States and, and unite a country on those issues. Um, mm -hmm. How in the world do you get kind of global consensus when these these issues are often just politicized and somebody blames, you know, once Washington blames a state or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they one party blames the other's environmental, uh, you know, uh, promotion of, uh, of, of green power, um, and right. it becomes really politicized, right? And, and there should be yeah. consensus, there needs to be dramatic consensus to move forward on some of this stuff. Right, I mean, it's, you're, you're putting your finger on an enormous problem that we have in terms of uh, basic statements of fact uh, being politicized. Now, I, I think there is probably some reasonable disagreement on, you know, the environmental underpinnings of the, you know, the weird Texas uh, freeze out. But in terms of things like wildfires and, and uh, you know, pandemic uh, origins, things like that, I think the more that we hew to science and we need science and the, you know, the, the nonpartisan uh, underpinning of science more than more than ever, and so. Uh, but I agree, it's a problem, um, and whether it's you know disinformation or information balkanization or or what have you, uh, I think it's a great problem of the you know coming decades. If we can't agree on the you know the problem set, it's hard to move to a solution set. That, that's that's a great way to put uh, this perplexing and disturbing, you know, disinformation age, especially in the U.S. right now. Right. When when you try to talk about things like global warming and the fact, you know, Biden is re-entering the Paris Accords, uh, yeah. and meanwhile the Republican Party, to a large degree, is you know still in denial even of of, of global warming, and that that, you know, more than probably any other lightning rod, and I should be asking mm -hmm. you, not telling you, I would think <laughs> that more than any other lightning rod has the ability to displace huge amounts of people, uh, right. economies, and, and cause great insecurity around the globe. Right. I, and I would just add to that, not just has the capacity, but um, at least a certain amount of that uh, is almost certain to transpire. And so you, we know, uh, you know, irrespective of which, you know, policies in terms of greenhouse gases and, you know, other things with climate change, we know that some fraction of that uh, is going to transpire. And so, you know, it's really incumbent on, you know, security officials and policymakers to do something about the, the change that is coming. And one thing I will just add um, you know, I spent a decade in the intelligence community and I did uh, more than my share of briefing of uh, officials uh, in both Democratic and, and Republican administrations and also on, on, on the Hill. 
um, there's a lot more uh, common ground than I think people realize, um, especially younger uh, people. Uh, even when they're Republican, they very often uh, embrace uh, you know the science and want to do something about it. And so I, I, I think I need to hear our, that because uh, a lot of us yeah. feel that you know people are living in denial and in Washington, some of them. Some of them. I, I used to joke that uh, I had never met a climate denier in Washington uh, when the doors were closed. Um, uh, but when the doors were open and the cameras were on, it, it was a different story. And they did that because of industry and lobbying pressure. Well, I mean, uh, presumably, I mean, you never know what motivate motivates people to take one position uh, you know, publicly and another one privately, but, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the way that our politics are run in the United States and, you know, how, uh, money fuels it. Uh, I suspect that's part of the, part are of the Are you issue. alarmed at the pace at which we're seeing what you called biological annihilation? Mm -hmm. And there's a long chart in that report. Um, right. When you go through some of it, are you, are you alarmed at the, the pace, just not, you know, in, in the last 10 years, but even in the last few years, as yeah. we're getting better at charting some of this, uh, yeah. it's, it's some of the stuff is, is pretty shocking. Right. Well, so uh, the term biological annihilation isn't the one that I use. It's actually used by some pretty preeminent ecologists. And uh, when I read it, when I was still in government, I read a scientific paper. Uh, it just shook me. Um, you know, if, when you work in this space, you're aware of general global trends um, and, and, and ecological trends. But uh, when you read that kind of language uh, by people who have devoted their life to studying ecological systems, mm -hmm. uh, it's very, uh, you know, for me, it was uh, very uh, sobering. And so, yes, I am alarmed um, by extinction rates. Uh, you, you hear many and you can read many scientists argue that we're entering or, you know, at the uh, beginning of a sixth mass extinction. If that's true, we're in deep trouble. Uh, and it will have more than just effects on societies and, and, and nations. I mean, we're really creeping up on existential, uh, you know, crisis. The, the thing about, you know, about, uh, extinctions of species and populations and, you know, biodiversity loss and a lot of those uh, uh, issues is, uh, you know, the rebound, if we, you know, as societies quit doing some of uh, these, these practices, the rebound is quite rapid, right? If, if we cut down on deforestation, cut down on wildlife trade, cut down on overfishing and uh, overlogging, uh, nature does rebound. In fact, uh, I think we should see this kind of policy and these kinds of actions as a way to bolster our um, resilience against, uh, you know, climate change, pandemic risk, uh, you know, et cetera, these other threats. Uh, this is one that has a direct human uh, fingerprint on it that, uh, you know, if you're looking for solutions, you just dial, dial that back. 
I want to talk to you talk to you about your recommendations in a second at the end of it because sure. that's really the punchline. And but you also talked about you know there's a section in there in pandemics and large scale epidemics becoming more frequent. Mm-hmm. And obviously you you take the position that you know the 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 movie we find ourselves in uh, COVID nineteen along with um, you know dengue, uh, cholera, Ebola. Uh, that these are all, z- z- um, how do you say, it? Z- zoonotic spillover events from animals yeah. to humans because uh, of of these security threats of of the environment. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, human activities are increasing the human wildlife uh, interface, and there's a tremendous amount of microbial diversity and the natural systems as we uh, as we uh, cross into and, and lower uh, that threshold between human wildlife and humans and wildlife and livestock, um, then we expose ourselves to, I think scientists estimate something like 1.7 million undisc- undiscovered viruses that animals and uh, mammals and birds, harbor. And that cannot just pass to us directly, but pass through our, uh, you know, our, our livestock systems. Um, I think a report by the, uh, by IPIS, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services said they estimated in a special report a couple years ago, that something like uh, 850,000 viruses could infect humans. Um, Only. Only. And so, you know, I think it's really incumbent on policymakers and the public to see, to accurately see the, uh, the environment that we're living in, which is one of uh, increasing infectious uh, human diseases. I mean, we should see COVID-19 as one in an increasing pattern of, of infectious disease risk and uh, there's another one lurking around uh, the corner. Um, and so we really need to get our act together and understand, uh, not, I mean, understand the pathogen space, but also uh, decrease our exposure. Um, and, you know, there's some easy things to do, uh, but it, you know, it takes countries talking to each other and it talks uh, and it takes, um, you know, leaders uh, doing, doing those kinds of things. But, you know, I, you know, a lot of these issues like the wildlife trade, uh, pandemic, uh, risk in the United States are largely bipartisan and they are historically bipartisan. And so there, there are, uh, opportunities for these, uh, you know, both sides of the aisle to work together if they decide to do so. Uh, but I have found over the years that, uh, the Republican Party to be quite strong on uh, conservation and wildlife and, uh, you know, these sorts of issues. So some of the things you talk about is heightened action from the U.S. Congress and the executive branch to combat mm-hmm. ecological and national security disruptions. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. I mean can you translate that into something that uh, mm-hmm. a little more digestible? You're saying that the government should do what? Well, I mean, in terms of um, you know, Congress, uh, the major function that, that Congress 
can play in this role is funding. Um, it, one of the, the, you know, I look at this issue, I don't see uh, this as an environmental issue that we're just marketing as a national security issue to get more, uh, you know, eyes on it, get more attention to it. Uh, you know, I've looked at this issue for quite some time. It, it worries me deeply. I see it as a, uh, as a security risk, as a societal risk. Um, but when you look at earmarks and you look how budgets are drawn in, in the U.S. Con- Congress, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, wo- it's woefully low, for, especially for the return on investment. Right. So, you know, uh, things that, you know, like uh, marine protected areas or protected areas, which we can see as a completely um, normally would view as an environmental preservation uh, action. But the security payoffs are are enormous uh, in terms of what I just uh, laid out in terms of pandemic risk and effects of human security and uh, effects on uh, um, political stability. And so we need to increase funding for what, you know, has historically been considered environmental issues. I, I think we need something like a tenfold increase over 10 years uh, in this space in terms of international conservation, uh, disease, ecology, and, and pandemic uh, uh, prevention. And then the executive branch, uh, they're, they largely treat these issues as, as environmental issues. They, they, they don't typically rise to the level uh, that you would involve the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, or the CIA director. But the effects on people and the effects on, uh, on the stability of nations uh, argues that it, it needs to be elevated in terms of uh, executive branch action and task force and, uh, and ultimately action. Um, so internationally and domestically. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have their attention now on <clears throat> pandemic issues, uh, you'll never get it. Right. And, and That's right. Uh, although some of them still live in, in denial and, de- and debate about what the cause of the pandemic was, I mean, it, it's hard to make right. it in, exactly an ecolo- ecological link because we still don't know the uh, the sources of the outbreak. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that if you accept, um, you know, COVID-19 is a worse example of, you know, we've had SARS, we've had HIV, we've had chikungunya, we've had Zika, we've had MERS, uh, you know, these are well-established Ebola. zoonotic and Ebola, of course, two rounds of Ebola. Um, these are well-known, established pandemic uh, of zoonotic origin. And so for me, just I think our evidence of some other explanation from, you know, uh, other than zoonotic spillover, would have to be really, really compelling uh, to to uh, pull us away from what I think is a much more obvious uh, explanation. Uh, but in some ways, it doesn't matter whether you know where it came from 
in terms of its effect on people. I think what it's shown uh, is a uh, is the power of you know a, a unseeable uh, piece of genetic material to bring massive social and economic disruption. And you know, in the intelligence community, you know, we we warned about uh, these events. We warned time and again about uh, pandemic risk. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was in the uh, intelligence community dealing with both uh, avian flu, uh, MERS, Middle Eastern Re Respiratory Syndrome, um, Zika. Uh, I left before COVID-19 really uh, rooted. But, you know, I can tell you that uh, it's, it seems to be a low-level issue in the security world until it happens. And then it's the most important thing. Yeah, it brings the economy to its knees. I right. Mean, there, it's, it's, uh, they, they, just, right. they just didn't get even genome sequencing uh, funding right. in, in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is far behind other countries even on that. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, but, but one, and, and that's just it. I mean, uh, I predict even a couple of years from now, there will be people in the security community who will have a hard time convincing senior uh, policymakers, senior officials, that pandemics are a national security issue. I mean, it just, I mean, yeah. Uh, even how disrupt, I mean, uh, as disruptive as this event has been, the capacity for people to forget and move on, it's enormous. I, I, I've seen this firsthand, of course, COVID-19 uh, is is many times greater than what I experienced. But even people who were, uh, you know, watching uh, the uh, just the churn uh, inside of Africa, you know, a year later, uh, you know, I'm talking about the Ebola um, uh, epidemic. Mm -hmm. You know, just a year later, they had moved on to something else. Um, Last question to you: Is yeah. it? Is it? Um... I guess, a hard reality that while people like you are warning that these are national security risks um, and that you have to change your national security architecture, you have to have, uh, you know, security officials involved in planning for this. Right. Um, is, it a, is it a hard reality that probably things are going to have to get worse uh, to drive the point home? And, and that the environmental cost, unfortunately, um, in, in the ecological uh, risks at the, at the same time are, are, are so severe uh, that we, we may not be able to do a 180 degree turn on some of this. Yeah, it's, uh, um, it's difficult. I think you pinned, uh, that, that's a really a, a great question uh, because for whatever reason, uh, and I think it's especially bad in the United States, but, you know, organizations uh, tend to not be very good at strategic planning and mapping out, uh, you know, scenarios and then acting on uh, that information to steer their way through, uh, you know, rough roads ahead. For whatever reason, we seem to need to be in a reactive mode um, and you know, with both climate change and ecological disruption, pandemic preparedness, uh, waiting until it's on you 
to react is the worst pathway through. Is there, is there uh, a better answer? Is it a restructuring of government? Um, or do we take it out of government and make climate emergency something different to, so that we're able to plan and, and, yeah. and head it off? Because we're, we're not going to. We're just going to we're going to wait till somebody's thirsty before we talk about clean water. Right. I mean, partially, I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to answer that question, but uh, certainly uh, the government is not going to be able to solve these problems by themselves. It will require uh, other elements uh, in the public, the you know, private sector. Um, but without the government, uh, we will not uh, be able to marshal the resources and, you know, the, you know, just the, the will uh, to tackle some of these issues. And it really, I think something like this really has to come from on top. And so the, you know, just not to get too wonky here, uh, but in the United States, uh, we have lost the capacity to do long-term strategic planning that uh, response to climate change, response to uh, pandemics, toxification of our you know, oceans and, you know, uh, and ecological disruption. Why is that? This political uh, paralysis? or uh, I think we have moved into, I think it's partly political paralysis, but I also think, uh, you know, that it has not been a priority since uh, maybe... Uh, maybe the Eisenhower years, um, you know, there used to be an office inside of the White House who, whose only function, and they lasted in between administrations, who focused on long-term strategy. But the, but the government is almost purely reactive now and, and responds to the emergency in their inbox or on the front of the New York Times or whatever. Um, and the there are very few entities in the government who are looking at how the future is evolving. Well, Rod, you know, I mean, I guess maybe the only good news is that when you pull young people in Europe or you pull people in America or Canada, for that matter, that th these are big issues for younger people. So maybe yes. they would just throw these guys the hell out until they start understanding that the environment uh, and ecology and what, what you talk about, the security risks that, that bind us, right. will eventually get driven home with a new generation. Hopefully that fire is lit and it doesn't go out. Yeah, I'm, I'm very um, optimistic uh, about uh, how quickly the, uh, you know, these generations are taking these issues on. And seriously, I, I think they're seeing it a lot more holistically than I would have expected. They're not seeing it uh, as climate only or, uh, you know, uh, uh, inequality only. They're, they're able to package a whole number of stresses and, and things that they see as problematic together. Uh, and I, I, I admire that and I, I'm, I'm optimistic. My, my three-year-old daughter uh, uh, needs uh, that kind of, um, you know, attention and, and um, really a reprioritization of what's important uh, to, to people and societies. Again, environmental issues. I mean, young people can really relate to them. So Rod Schoonover, right. the uh, author of the report, The Security Risk That Binds Us, 
uh, and also, uh, you know, writing that for the Council on Strategic Risks. Great to talk. Right. Thanks. Thank you. And that's our backstory on our fragile world. Changing so fast now, we all have to be concerned. By the way, it's the World Wildlife Fund, not Federation. I must have been thinking of the WWF, but this podcast was not about wrestling, was it? Maybe next time. That's Backstory. Please share this podcast and sign up for my daily newsletter, danalewis.substack.com. danalewis.substack.com. I'm trying to give you an idea of what to read, what's important. And in all of that, I try to list the individual source articles so you can also read them yourself. Thanks for listening. I'm Dana Lewis reporting from London, and I'll talk to you again soon.